0: Hello, Alvin Zamudio. Hello, Dirk Pointer. It's uh, well, it's been I I talked to you recently, but before that, it had been twenty plus years since we spoke.
1: Long time. I I was trying to think of when that the last time I remember interacting was that that retreat and concert, and I'm I'm thinking that was probably 90, 94, 95. That would like be.
0: That. Yep, exactly. Yeah, a long time. <clears throat> and and I think uh, as we go along, we'll talk a little more about that and um so, so you're here um, to talk about a, a topic for me that's really personal, and uh, I mean, we are talking about our spirituality, which I think is personal for everybody. Sure. Um, I think for the two of us, we've had very similar journeys, although we, we, uh, perhaps our conclusions came from different directions, but as far as where we started and where we went, probably the first 25, 30 years of our life are very similar um and so while most of my uh my stories have been one way of just really trying to let people talk i i'm i'm planning on contributing today and, and kind of tell a little bit of my spiritual journey as well uh because they do overlap so I thought we'd start with you um so we're we're here to talk about i mean we'll just break up the top we're here to talk about a break away from i i guess faith or evangelical Christianity might be a better way to put it. Um, yep. <clears throat> and so I'll let you, that. you, you start, start with when you were a kid going to church or, or wherever it starts back then for you. Uh,
1: well, I mean, you like, uh, I don't, my earliest recollection of anything that had to do with Christianity was when I was about five or six years old. And I had, a, I had a brother, um, my brothers were older. So I I was the the youngest of the family. Everybody was at least 12, 13 years older than me. And one of my brothers had gone to the military stationed over Germany. While he was there, he found Jesus, came back and started sharing with everybody in the family. Before that time, I don't really remember much of anything. I I mean, I'm, I'm full-blooded Mexican. So you're kind of naturally Catholic, I think Uh, just, you know, just, as far as the the heritage goes, that's just kind of like the assumption that everybody is that way. My mom was kind of that way. When my brother came, that was a challenge to Catholicism, to move into Protestantism, and that was how it started. So my earliest recollection actually was quite scary. My brother told me about what would happen when I died if I didn't know Jesus. And to tell that to a five-year-old kid that really sent me in that really messed with my head, to be honest, because I used to have nightmares. I'd wake up and see the earth getting smaller and I was scared that I was gonna die and I didn't know anything about it. And there's a quote from from a movie, I think it was the crow, your childhood is over the moment that you know you're gonna die. And once I knew that, that affected me. So that put me in a vulnerable situation. And we grew up kind of I grew up kind of going back and forth to a few different Baptist churches, different places. And then we moved again down to Texas, which is where uh, my family was from. But we were in St. Louis during this time. Then we moved to Texas, came back to St. Louis again. And that was probably 1979, 80, just before we met. And then I ended up at at Hope Church, the church in Berkeley where we all met. And that was, we just kind of grew up doing the church thing you went on Sundays you did vacation Bible school as a kid it was a different experience uh sermons were always boring so they always had something to entertain us so I was fine with I was okay with that cookies and whatnot and all that stuff in between and a lot of cool songs it was when middle school and when you when they pulled you out of children's church that's when things got a little weird because I wasn't accustomed to the seriousness of it it became a little bit more serious um and then from there, it just turned into the high school stuff, and then college and whatnot. So, is that what you you want me to go into any more detail on anything? Yeah,
0: or? we'll get into more. But so, when well, your okay. brother, your brother came back from Germany, you said, yeah. So he was, and that would I guess you were, you were five, so we're talking 72,
1: 73?
0: Yeah, 70, 74, 74. Okay, seventy four. So, um, <clears throat> did he, so I assume he told you about hell that if you went, you died okay. without believing Jesus. So, yeah. was was the thing that woke you up just the realization that you're going to die or was it what, that you're going to burn forever or whatever description that he gave to you? Well,
1: from, from the adult perspective, I look at it now and I feel like I've learned over the past few years. And I think I've been learning it all my life, but I think I finally was put into a good – somebody put it this way. You either do things out of fear or out of love. And I think that what happened was, and this is, this is my biggest complaint about evangelical Christianity or any, any religion that, that has judgment, is that <clears throat> you cannot mix fear and love together. And I feel like that's what happened. It was like, hey, here's a fearful thing. You're, ho- you're being held over the pit of hell. Oh, my gosh, you don't know what's going to happen to you. But if you do this, you'll be fine. And so living in that, there, there was a mind job there, I believe, happened to me. Uh, I was scared into making the decision. We used to joke and call it fire insurance. That's basically what happened. I mean, what am I going to say? No, nah, I don't believe. I'm five. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm thinking Legos. I, I don't know what's going on. So <clears throat> when he brought up something like brimstone or evil or darkness or Satan or anything of that sort, I hadn't been introduced to that yet. So that was a new thing and that's going to make me scared because fear is usually the way we respond to the unknown. But yet it was, it was presented to me as a form of love and it was that dichotomy that, you know, it's like they, they, uh, for some reason, there was an ambivalence there. I really struggled with that. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of like how it affected me. So I think it, I feel that it traumatized me, but it was glossed over with religion. So as long as I fulfilled the role of what I was supposed to do as a good kid, I was fine. But the moment I screwed up, fear set back in. Because right. well, I couldn't, I didn't have the concept of whether I could lose my salvation or not. I, I couldn't understand at that point if I'm bad, will God not want me anymore? Because if I'm bad, my parents will my mom would get and I get in trouble. My brothers would spend my dad was gone, but oh, I'd see my dad. But still, you know, you get in trouble at school, you lose privileges. So I didn't understand the difference between position and condition in in religion at the time. My position was that I was always supposedly safe, but my condition could be affected. But then again, when I got older, there's different theology on that too. You could lose it if you do something bad enough, if there's the unpardonable sin or whatever you want to do. Right. So there's all these complications and fine print. So yeah, it really did mess with me. And I think I spent a lot of my time in fear of doing the right thing Otherwise, I was I was worried that I would be in trouble, and whatever those fears of hell and all that would come back, or mm-hmm. something bad would happen to me. And I should add something else too. There was something else somebody did that just came to, to mind. This was actually before <clears throat> I realized this changes the story. To be honest with you, because I believe this happened when I was three. My mom had a friend who um, was a neighbor, and when I was three years old, I remember there was a story the the family used to joke about where I took paper towels. And I rolled them out on the, on the grass, pretending to make my own sidewalks. I was already an artist at the time. I was obviously like, Hey, I got an idea. But so I'm trying to make a sidewalk. Cause I saw that, well, my mom came out, I got in trouble. And I remember this lady, her name was Ruth. And she said, and I've never forgot this. And I think this is actually where it really started. Not really with my brother. I think he just poked a hole in it. Uh, something that was already very thin. She said, <clears throat> or a crack in my foundation, I should say. she said, I'm going to tell God that you did that. I'm going to tell, and it scared the living daylights out of me. And I started, I remember crying. So I was traumatized by some fear of God, even before my brother came. So when he said what he said, I think it fit right into it. But I know that was beforehand because for some reason, I know I was in diapers. And by the time I was in uh, five years old at kindergarten, I wasn't in diapers anymore. So chronologically, it makes sense. Yeah. But still, it's that fear, you see, it's it's like it keeps you in check. And that's how we keep order rather than love, which is love keeps no record of wrongs. I didn't know how to think that way then, you know, so.
0: Yeah, that's an unfortunate uh, original presentation there, I guess, when you were three.
1: Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. but you know, I'll bet you it ain't rare. Yeah. I think that's probably the most common way that people are introduced to religion is through some form of fear or judgment. Because my theory is that uh, it really is more useful to control masses and behavior of masses rather than to actually heal the soul itself. I think Mm -hmm. there's genuine people out there that really believe that's the, but I really think it's like, you know, uh -uh. if we make you, if we put this verse in here, then you won't be sleeping with each other. And everybody will be good, and nobody breaks the rules. You don't do drugs, you don't cuss, you don't drink, you don't do any of that stuff. That kind of thing. But
0: so, do you remember your uh, your conversion moment, or when did you when you accepted Christ? That that moment, or was <clears> that...
1: well, I mean, I guess I I kind of do, but I don't feel like I don't really feel like it was a particular uh, experience because shortly after that, I do remember having fears that if I asked too many times. I would get turned away. And I remember bringing that up to my brother and he said, no, no. And and it was like, it it was trying to give me the love side of it. But I remember actually doing it at five. I don't really feel like, I do feel like when I got older and I was uh, 12 and I was able to be baptized, I kind of had my rededication moment or something like that, which would be the evangelical version of a confirmation, I guess. Um. I connected to it a little bit more then because I think I had more of an understanding of what it was all about. I don't think I really understood the concept of eternity at that age. Mm-hmm. So no, there was no, no um, mystical experience of any kind. I know there are those that have had those um, they've made those claims. So I know that's probably possible, but no, for me, it was just a, <clears throat> it was a little bit more of a, uh, just a practical decision that I felt was that had spiritual Connotations, but I was too young to understand. So,
0: so yeah, for me it was it was uh, somewhat similar. I mean, I was raised in in. I mean, we were going to the Evangelical Free Church in San Antonio, Texas. We lived down there. Uh, my dad was in the oh, Air Force. I didn't know that were Down in Texas. Okay. Yeah, that was. Uh, we were in Del. My dad was in the Air Force, so we were in Del Rio for two years and San Antonio for two years. Did you ever was, go to the basement of the Alamo? No, but, uh, <laughs> heck, there's a, a bike theory. down there. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, <laughs> uh, we did go to this anyway. So <laughs> uh, we were there when I was like, uh, I don't know, one and a half to five, somewhere in that range. And then we moved to St. Louis, uh, when my dad retired from the air force. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a couple different stories uh, you know, I was, I was raised with the same idea of, you know, uh, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through him. Right. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I wholeheartedly believed it. I mean, and I don't, I don't know if I ever felt that same, the same way about the fear. I, I, it was clearly there and that's, and you were, you were taught it. I don't know that I was, um, I don't know that I had it. I don't know the right way to say it. Waved, waved in my face in the same way. Okay. Um, but the salvation part—the the, the teaching that we're all uh, we're all born sinners, and, you know, there's original sin and we need salvation—and that clicked to me very young. And, and my mom remembers. There's two stories. My mom remembers me at a a five day club. You remember five day clubs? Oh yeah, we I do
1: remember those.
0: Yeah. yeah. So for for the uh, for the five day club was uh, just a a summer. It's vacation Bible school. Maybe at somebody's house. Yeah. So yeah, you'd go to somebody's house in the summer from Monday through Friday for three or four hours. Right.
1: And there wasn't a ton of people. I think it was a small group of something like that. I remember those. Yeah. Yeah, of kids, right. We sounds... were a bunch of us in VBS. Yeah. It was crazy.
0: So my mom remembers me accepting Christ at a five-day club, and I remember it on the stairs at home, like leaning over. and And – for those who don't know to, you know, accepting Christ is you, you, you pray the, what, what some would call the sinner's prayer. You know, you, you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus in your, in your heart. Um, which isn't actually in the Bible, but that's a separate. Um, True. Yeah. So because Jesus's blood covers over all sins and that's, that's a common theme from Catholicism. I mean, that's always been the, um, but the, the, the evangelical movement would tell you that that's, That's what you need. And, you know, we moved here.
1: uh, Billy Graham, Billy Sunday,
0: and all those. Absolutely. That's
1: when it really got popular.
0: Now, one, what? Sorry.
1: Prayer thing, I remember historically. It was at that point that it became this actual act of the sinner's prayer, which you're right is not in the scripture. But it became popular during that evangelical movement in the 50s and 60s and before. That's where I remember reading that or watching that in a documentary. Just adding that as you go. Go ahead. I just yeah. Want
0: to... Well, and then Jimmy Carter with the same as uh, his Playboy art, art, art uh, interview where he said he was a born-again Christian, and that kind of made that phrase more common. Oh,
1: really? That, that came from a Playboy interview?
0: Yeah, from Jimmy Carter. Yeah. That's fine. It may have been a phrase that was already being used in, in Christian circles, but I know, but I know that he threw it out there and it was like, Jimmy Carter is born again and playboy
1: (laughs) exactly you can't write that stuff that's good that's a good one (laughs) um this poetic i don't know how you put yeah uh,
0: yeah so we um we came to st louis and we came to hope church now you're you're four years older than me i want to say um, four years ahead of me in school. Get that to yourself, Dirk. I'm well, it. you know, right now it's no big deal, but <laughs> yeah, a little when, while. When you're in eighth grade and here's this right, 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 High school, they're like a god. You know, they're um. Uh, yeah, I think so because I don't remember when we when
1: we actually started interacting. If it was like when you were when I was older in high school, but you were or I was a leader at some of the camps or something, maybe.
0: Well, I I'm. remember
1: that? I remember being a staffer at a junior high. Especially during the, the, uh, the blue eyed monster thing or whatever that I think, I think you might've been there for that. I don't remember that big, huge thing where we scared the living daylights, of everybody with these two flashlights we put on oh. a cereal box that had like the blue eyed, I think it was the green one. Well,
0: anyway. Okay. I don't share. So, uh, but I'm the same age as your cousin, Eddie or yeah. Har- Harley, yeah. whatever mm-hmm. his name is now. Um, yeah.
1: He's my nephew, actually. Yeah. Okay. That's how yeah. I am compared to the rest of my family. They were all like having kids by then.
0: You're right. I hadn't. That is, I, yeah. that
1: is correct. You're three. You're right around the same age as him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And by the time I, I got into the youth group at hope, which is a church you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I would have been a junior high and you would have been in high school and you were, you were like a, you were the celebrity. You were leading all the music and occasionally like leading the lessons and funniest guy on earth. You know, that kind of guy.
1: yeah, I do. I guess it did kind of turn into that. I, mean, I didn't expect it, but that just kind of naturally happened, sort of. Yeah, So it was an interesting time.
0: Yeah, so that was that was that's our early connections, and and um, Hope Church was is uh, was a non denominational, so it wasn't evangelical free. It wasn't part of right. any kind of. It was just a just an independent church there, right by the airport in St. Louis, mm-hmm. and so. Later on, um, I lived out in St. Peter's, which was, it was a half-hour drive there and back every day for every Sunday. And we were going Sunday morning, Sunday night. We probably went Wednesday night. And we'd go in for other events. You know, we went to church a lot. And a lot of people were moving out to St. Charles County at the time. Right. right. Um, so, Hope planted a church out in St. Peter's mm-hmm. called Grace Community Chapel. And a little trivia for you, it started in our house, in the Pointer it, household. Really? I didn't know
1: that. Yeah. It, and Don B was already? Yep. So, so Don, it was always funny that Pastor Miller had a son named Donald, Donald A and Donald B. Yep. So Donald A Miller was the pastor, but Donald B took, started Grace, and that was at your point. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't, know, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, so we would come to church uh, at Hope in the morning, and then we'd come back home, and my mom would make us clean all day long. And then we'd, then we'd have church in the evening. We'd have grace in the evening at our house in the living room. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was a lot. Huh. Kids, we hated it. <laughs> we had, to, we had All we cared about was we had to clean the house. Yeah, right. <laughs> Miserable. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. You had to go through that. Yeah, you know, we'll be all right. Yeah. Um, and and then the, the church groups where we, we had to rent out uh, the gym at, a, at my elementary school. And, uh, then they built the building over on Mexico road. So, Mm -hmm.
1: which is still there.
0: Yeah, it's still there. And it's now they're on a third sanctuary. Mm. They built their third one. So, so anyway, I thought, let's talk a little bit about, about the specific, we we talked about being born again and, and a little bit about, you know, you're born a sinner and you need the blood of Christ to cover over that. I don't think that's breaking new ground. That's, that's Catholics. That's product. That's pretty much everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the, the theology or teachings of, of the church we grew up in. Um, and I've got some stuff in mind, but you, you go first and, and hit on that.
1: Uh, like what would you specifically, um, you know, to my reactions to it or my feel like how I can, I can share a little bit about how it, how I kind of walked away, like where the cracks in the foundation started too, but I'll, I'll let you kind of guide me a little bit. I've got. Did a it
0: start that. that early for you?
1: Well, no, no, it didn't. I, uh, the glory years were that time you were talking about, which is when I realized that I was, I had a, an ability to uh, perform and to do music and to be, and, and humor. And what a little bit of background on me is that during the time that I mentioned uh, right after my brother had shared with me about, about uh, God, up until that point, about 11, between that time I had experienced some abuse um, and that's sexual abuse. I think there was emotional abuse as well. I came from a broken home. These are important factors in my story because those kinds of things, and I don't, and and I don't, I want people that are listening or watching this to know that it doesn't mean that it's an, that it has to be an overt form of abuse. You, You judge abuse by the effect, not by the act, not by what's done to you, but how it affects you. So I might push three glasses off a table and they all break differently. One might not break. I broke in a really bad way. And what settled into me was a lot of, and I was set up for this because of the born sinner thing, was guilt and remorse turning into shame. Instead of me doing something wrong, something was wrong with me. My dad was gone. My family was gone. Those were there. Those issues were dormant inside of me. And by the time I got old enough, maybe 11, 12 they started manifesting in different ways, especially when puberty hits, things can become sexual. Your thoughts get crazy. Um, That's important stuff because there was nobody to talk to about any of that at that time. So my relationship with God and the holiness quest was more strained because now I have deeper temptations that I never had. I never even remembered some of the abuse. And then when thoughts started coming to me, I realized how much that was affecting me. So that was putting me in a position to be very dependent on what I felt was God and the power of of God. And that put me in a situation that I will tell people that I, I, I don't mean it to sound arrogant, but sometimes I'll say the reason why I found Christianity wanting is because I tried it too hard. I mean, I put it to the test. If you said, like, say to this mountain, I went to try to move a mountain. I would do anything like, in faith of a mustard seed, let's try it. I need this to happen. I need God, please do this for me. What do I need to do? I'd bargain. I did it all because I was struggling. My mom didn't have much money at all. We were very poor. A lot of the people at at our church were decently well off. I was from a divorced home, a minority. I started to figure out later that there were some issues with that too. Um, That caused some rifts in my relationships with certain people in the church. And so it was a very strange time growing through that so there I think that the creativity was kind of a compensation Uh, a good therapist that talked with me told me that he thought that it saved my life if it hadn't been for all the creativity and the humor you know how we were just the joking and I think airplane had come out at that time and police squad (laughs) and all that I mean just that dry uh, humor was that was my thing I could fall right into that and that's how we just kept growing our, our energies, but it didn't conflict with Jesus. It didn't conflict with any of the, you know, there was no, it wasn't sexual humor or anything like that, but we always had to keep those boundaries that never crossed over. So we could push it as far as we wanted, as long as we kept a cross stapled on it, it would be fine. So those were, that, those were dynamics that were affecting the way that I conducted myself in ministry. So I was very serious when I realized what Jesus could do. He can change a person's heart. A whole person can come out. You could be transformed reading the scriptures. Wow. That's some serious stuff. Let's do it. So there was this hyper serious side of me too, that I think allowed me to speak into, you know, to teach. And, and I remember Kent Harding, if you remember Kent, um, he was the first person to tell me he wanted me to speak, um, I think I was in middle school at the time. He wanted me to share one night and just teach the the group. I might've been 13, 14, I don't know. And after it was over, he encouraged me, Alvin, I think you're an evangelist. And I didn't know what that was. I just knew that I had this passion and I was able to convince and persuade people to believe. So that's kind of how it started. That was pretty serious. So I was in ministry. I feel like ministry started for me when I was in middle school and high school at the beginning. Um, So, I mean, that was kind of where it started. From there, it just naturally led to getting invited to camps. Uh, Dan Hoagland invited me out to Grace when I got to college, and I would go out there, and I would do music, and all these people started saying, and I started noticing people would say, like Alvin said when we were in groups. Yeah, like Alvin said, and I guess I was saying things that were sticking, and people were getting it, and it seemed to make sense, and I was able to help teach people somehow because of that. I didn't think much of it. It just kind of naturally came out and that just grew and grew and grew. So before I knew it, I was not only coming and doing music, but sometimes I'd be the speaker. Then I would maybe pray with people and kind of guide people and whatever. And it just seemed like a natural career for me by the time I hit college. It's what I was thinking I would be doing. So,
0: so you said that, well, well, first of all, you ask, so used to make, I remember you'd make jokes about being a Mexican all the time. I mean, I don't yeah. think that. Yeah. And cause you know, it was hilarious. But so you, you said that that actually you found out later that, that there were people that just.
1: I, I did uh, there. It was, it was a form of, I mean, not to get too political here, but it was a form of internalized racism that I kind of stepped into that. I'm not really, it doesn't really bother me too much as a Mexican to make those jokes sometimes just because our culture is funny, the things that we would do. Um, and so sometimes, you know, some of the, some of the words that, that like the Mexican word of the day, um, that somebody mispronounces some of those can be kind of funny. However, I did figure out as I got older that this is where it becomes more serious. Like my grandfather, my mother's dad was, uh, murdered by the Texas Rangers. He was hung and they took his land. And I don't think that I realized until I got much older that that pain was still in my heart and in my bloodline. And there were issues coming out back then that I don't think I recognized until I got older. And as I started looking back, I thought, wow. In a way, I was kind of playing into the role because I was among a a large group of the majority of people were white. There was hardly, I don't think there were maybe one or two people that were black I was Mexican, my nephews were half Mexican, they looked white, but I noticed that some of the stories of things I went through with some of the the church elders, as I look back on it, I can kind of see, you know, it's interesting that I was singled out in certain ways. And I kind of wondered what led to that. And I feel like being from a divorced family, you got a troubled kid, the Zamudio boy, you know. And then the fact that I was a minority, I was poor, those factors did play into um, ways that I got typed and treated. But I don't think, I think I was too innocent, and very resilient at the time. So I didn't have a problem playing into it because being Mexican then and joking about being Mexican, it didn't cost me anything then. But when I got older, I realized there were a lot of things I didn't get that other people did. And then I started to realize, whoa, I mm-hmm. lost out. And then all of a sudden the, the, the set changed. And then it, it put things into perspective, retroactively or retrospective, however you want to put it. In hindsight, wow, I lost out on some things. So that's why I wasn't invited. So that's mm. why they didn't want me to date their daughter, blah, 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 this and that and the other. Um, and there were other factors too, I'm sure. But I was compliant. I didn't smoke, drink, cuss, didn't do anything bad. Um, there were just other things. I think that as I look back on it now, yeah, I can see where there probably was some, there was some, uh, stereotyping and maybe some generalizations there and, uh, scapegoating, whatever. I think there was some of that, but it wasn't overt. It's not like anybody came out and said, you know, you're a Mexican boy, blah, blah, blah. But I did have a couple of confrontations with one or two people that I thought, as I look back, I think, I don't remember any other kids getting called those names. So yeah, that was part of it.
0: As you're talking, I'm thinking of a one ton tomato. Oh, yeah. I don't
1: know where I learned that from, but that was a play on a Mexican song, actually a Cuban song, Guantalameta. And I actually liked it because I knew the song anyway, so I played right into it. I didn't have a problem. But I don't think that I realized that I was making a spectacle of myself that was actually a little bit belittling. But I think that, I hate to say this too, I think in a very similar way to Jim Crow and Blackface, it was entertaining to those who didn't have any cost involved in it. It wasn't insulting the white people because they just thought "Hey, it's a Mexican song, but look at the little Mexican boy is able to do blah, blah, blah. Like he's so talented and all this and he's doing. So they would just kind of bring that up because that was their thing. And if they at the time, there wasn't any pain involved in it. It didn't bother me then. But as I got older, it was very strange because if somebody was to bring that up again, when I got older, I'd get mad. Really? I was mad back then. Yeah. So so the the pain of it evolved or, or I shouldn't say evolved, it 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 grew, it, it came out, um, it was revealed. But I think it was always there, but it was guarded by my own resilience and innocence. Ignorance. It really was guided by my ignorance, guarded by it because I didn't know any better. All of a sudden somebody goes, Hey, do you realize what you're doing? You're kinda like you're playing a show for these people and look at what they did to your family and what you're not gonna get and what they got, and all of a sudden, I realize there's animosity and resentment there. So that's a, that's an, a different mix compared to maybe your standard evangelical story where somebody doesn't have race involved. You know um, that was, that was a, that was a factor. Yeah. That started to happen. as I got older, I figured that out more. So.
0: The um, so you said, you mentioned that the first time you got up and talk was 13 or 14 and that's when Kent was encouraging you because you I mean you're a charismatic guy and you're a good speaker and, you're good off the cuff. You don't have to have a script in front of you to, you know, to say something uh, intelligent and informative.
1: And that can backfire too. though. <laughs> yeah,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you also mentioned that that was about the time that you were really starting to understand your Christianity. Like you, you know, you had, you had come to Christ at a young age, but when you were 12 years old and you got baptized, you're starting to understand it. So you really moved yep. almost directly into ministry in a way so that ministry was a big part of how you recognized your faith and how your faith was exercised from the very start it sounds like almost
1: yeah. i took it very seriously and i realized too as you were talking that one of the reasons for that is growing up from in a broken home where my dad wasn't around i was fatherless my dad was in town but i only saw him on the weekends and i didn't even care to see him much not Because he was mean or directly abusive or anything like that. He was just so distant. And that's an interesting dynamic that a lot of people we like to put in movies. We like to put these overtly like abusive um, dads and, and characters, but really it's the silence and the neglect that makes you that can make you feel more abandoned and worthless because you're filling in the blanks. What does he think about me? He's not telling me anything. So I feel like there was a void there in my relationship with my father. And how Jesus brings in the whole idea of calling him Abba, it's the whole intimacy is is introduced. Well, I don't have my real dad, I got God. So there you go. Mm-hmm. So I literally lived in the temple. I, I stayed up there as much as I could get up to whenever I could be there, me and my friend Michael Shea, if you remember Michael. Yeah. Um, We would hang, Michael lived across the street. So him and I would just be tearing up the place all the time, making videos, doing, you know, whatever, really good stuff. When you think about it now, we might've made a mess here and there, but we never set anything on fire. Wait a minute. No. Um, (laughs) But but I mean, you know, we were being good kids. We could have been up there smoking and drinking and doing all the bad stuff. But I remember that I found something in that church that I didn't have at home. For one, there were pianos. I had no piano. When I found the piano, I was 12, 13 And I started figuring out notes and somebody showed me chords and all of a sudden it changed everything. Well, if I wasn't up in the service, you'd find me sneaking around down in the Sunday school rooms playing piano. Hopefully nobody would find me, but I was always discovered. It was too loud. And that was, I would use the church as my surrogate home because at home all I had was a small bedroom. My mom didn't speak very good English. A lot of uh, struggles there with her and I just over relational stuff. Um, Nothing that she did that was bad, but just, we were disconnected. So I was very desperate for intimacy and community somewhere. And the father, the father's to set me up. So I really looked at God for, as a father. I mean, I put it to the test, you know, um, I prayed hard and expected things hard. And then if it doesn't happen, then I got laid, let down really hard too. So I had to learn how to walk in that balance, which eventually became part of my demise mm-hmm. later on.
0: Yeah. So we got, we have a little bit of divergence there. I mean, um, you know, my parents got divorced and I was a little bit older when I was in high school and, and now beginning, beginning of college when it was finalized and, but I can relate to a, a, a distant father, you know, again, there's no abuse there at all, but he just, you know, just wasn't really in, engaged and it just maybe wasn't able to, just didn't understand, wasn't able to grasp that part of it. Right. Right. Um, but I think that I came to my faith and carried my faith all through the all through high school for different reasons. And um, who knows what's underneath, I guess, you know, but, but I, uh, you know, my mom was very engaged and very, you know, very, she was really kind of the driving force behind all of it. Yeah. And, you know, she wasn't raised in a Christian home, but at one point when she was in high school, she'd had some, uh, some guys come to the door and she had accepted Christ while they're at the door. And then, you know, years later, when she had a family, she just thought, "Well, I should, I should be in church," and didn't really understand, you know, what that involved, and, and ended up going to uh, an evangelical church, and and the way we went. Um, and one of the biggest guiding principles for me the whole way, because my faith was building um, on the Bible, you know, and, and I don't think that's any different. But you know, the 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 fact and what I accepted was that the Bible was a historical inerrant document. So everything that happened in it from Adam and Eve through John's visions in revelation, everything mm-hmm. in between, everything in there was a hist- was a representation of an, a historical occurrence that happened exactly as it was written. Right. Um, now people get on the, the inerrancy thing and they'll say, well, the mustard seed wasn't the smallest seed. Well okay but you're accepting the uh I'm, like I can't think of the word but you're accepting the meaning of what is said you know if we assume that Jesus knew that mustard seed wasn't the smallest seed he's still talking to people in par- you know he's, he's right. not going to say it's the
1: dynamic ver in translation instead of the literal Exactly
0: so yeah you're you're accepting that that conversation happened on that day in the way it was written
1: Right right
0: um you you know you're accepting that Balaam talked to Balaam's donkey talked to him um which I, I good jokes there a lot of good jokes let let me back let me back up a little i this conversation and i don't know how you feel about it okay so i'm 47 and i really i really i, I lost my faith about at about 30 years old
1: hmm.
0: i was 6 years into my marriage which which was foundationally based upon who I was as a Christian. That was a major part of the bedrock of our marriage. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um,
0: because that's, you know, part of how you're raised too. you know, don't be yoked with unbelievers. You're And, and, and I had been a minister and I'd gone Wait, to seminary in the
1: time. Okay. I was wondering, say what you had been in ministry at the time.
0: Uh, well, no, I actually was only a youth minister for a couple of years and then okay. we got married and I got a job in the mortgage business cause we just couldn't, yeah. couldn't make it.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, but you know i still we still had that thought that i might go back and do it someday and so so this has been a tough conversation for me to have it was it was and i don't know about you it was really difficult on my marriage and i'd run into people and and i i still do and i there are people that maybe watching this that don't know and, and i there's a part of me that feels guilt or ups, i do feel upset at sharing my loss of faith with, with them, because I've, I'll tell you what, I've discipled a lot of people and, you know, through college, um, through several years as being a minister, it was probably about a 10 year period. One of the, one of the guys that was in my youth group when I was a youth minister is now an associate pastor uh, at the crossing here in town. And the crossing is a major evangelical mm-hmm. church mm-hmm. the pastor i, I really like the pastor a lot he actually he he is very down to earth for an evangelical type of guy it's not it's, it is not i don't know the right word for it but um and and they like broadcast his sermon to different locations like the music is live at different locations but his hymns preaching is is actually broadcast over the screen well tim who some people know was in my youth group when i was at uh, green trails united methodist which oh, is yeah, your trail, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. and we went and visited the crossing I oh, gosh I don't know five six seven years ago and he he's up there on stage and I'm like is that like that is that's that's Tim he's got a beard now and he's his voice a little deeper he's still so tall skinny and gangly but you know <laughs> I'm still short and tiny <laughs> so, <laughs> but he saw me, and and I didn't know the I was gonna want to go see him, and you know church ends, and I figure he's the associate pastor, and but during the greeting period, he came over, he's like Dirk, and I'm like yeah, and and he says to me, "You're the reason that I am here,"
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and I'm like, I I don't, yeah, see that that awkward moment, right? Yeah. And and quite honestly, the whole service, I was. I was overcome with positive emotions, just seeing him up there yeah, and knowing that I had an influence on him and that I knew him when, and yeah. you know, um, I mean, really I was like, I had chills and tears and, and boy, just, and he's just, he's just a great, he's always been a wonderful guy just from when he was 14 to, to now, you know, he's just a great guy. And yeah. I later had, I had lunch with him a few weeks later and I told him cause I didn't feel right not telling him at that point. And I I, have ch- I that's a challenge for me. I don't I don't go around broadcasting it. Probably for about a decade, I really didn't like talking about you know broadcasting. It was uncomfortable for me sure. because I had influenced so many people for the positive in the Christian faith, and i I don't feel like I don't feel anything. I, I still love those people, and mm-hmm. I, I I don't feel like they should change their faith, and I don't want to influence them. Ch- i want them to i want them to believe what th- makes them the best person now that 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 again falls outside well, of right, i yeah. would have
1: a different perspective on that i'm a right. little bit yeah from, i think yeah. we differ
0: on that so yeah. so this has been a challenging conversation for me you know um for a long time and and even as i'm talking about it, i'm a little bit, i know that people are going to see this that know me from college or know me from when i was in be like wow and there, you'll probably pray for me, and I really appreciate that. I, I'll tell yeah, everything he, I can get.
1: I, we won't see him. You <laughs> won't. <be> there. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I, have the same. I know there are people that are gonna be watching this probably too, and are gonna be. Some people still don't know that I've not been in ministry for or in the faith for for over a decade. Mm-hmm. So I understand that, and yeah, I, I really do understand that. And that's a tough one because that's very messy, um, to navigate. Because there's positives there, but there's a lot of negative attached to it. And how do you sort that out? Yeah. Oh, so I understand that one for sure.
0: It was a major hurdle in in, in my marriage. I mean, I'm, quite honestly, because it was, it, it took us a long time to work through that. Um, well,
1: most of the people that I ministered to were probably ones that would not fit in the standard typical church model. So in a way, I was still able to stay connected to a lot of them because they were already questioning things anyway. Uh, I do know that. I know there was a smaller amount of people who I would say would go on to ministry or into, cause usually I broke the mold somehow. We'd end up going out to the streets. So I never stayed in church. I mean, I, I ended up as kind of a missionary in town and I started churches and I was called in to solve problems. And I was like, uh, I was like the, well, the wolf from Pulp Fiction. It's like, I just kind of showed up. I think that was his name. Wasn't that Harvey Carter?
0: Well, like, was he, he the wolf? I don't remember Harvey his name. But.
1: I don't remember his name, but he, you show up, you fix problems, basically. When something goes bad, I would get a call.
0: You're the Christian yeah. cleaner.
1: Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So uh, so my, my, my situation was different. Some of those stories where people couldn't get problems fixed when I walked away, I could reconnect with them because now I know why they didn't get fixed. Now I understand why they never could click and fit in the mold, and then we became friends in different ways. So that was a different side of it as opposed to I wasn't having people inviting me to come see their first sermons or you know seminary graduations or anything like that, really. By that point, a lot of them figured out that they weren't going to stick around with me anyway because I wasn't going that way. Mm-hmm against the grain but yes i I have such few situations i still have people that write me that were in my youth groups and they're often doing ministry missionaries and whatever but kind of know that there's only so far they can go and they yeah it's awkward i get it
0: well the the uh the podcast before this one's going to be friends of mine who are missionaries so and they're in taiwan and i love them they're just yeah some two of my favorite people in the whole world and I haven't seen him in 25 years. It was so great to, you know, connect with him again.
1: So what, what was it that for you that where it started to fall away? What, what was the proof in the pudding or where did it. So I'm gonna take over the podcast, by the way. And I'll be...
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks for being on uh, we'll <laughs> next week.
0: No, that's a great question. So I, um, like you, I was, I was searching hard for a, for um ways to test and and believe believe it all the way right faith moves mountains speak in tongues perform miracles um and and the church we went to while it was non-denominational was not into that was was um and i don't know that there was a specific belief where they said we don't believe that but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, a charismatic church or um where where that regularly where people are speaking in tongues and faith healings and stuff. That wasn't our church. I don't think it, I don't, I think there were a lot of people there that, that were borderline believed in that stuff. Um, are anyway, hope or are you talking about later I'm talking about hope and grace? Okay. The people at yeah, my mom, you know. Very
1: much under the serve. That was the Frank Peretti spiritual warfare was fine yes. when it came to Jesus side. You didn't do anything crazy. Yeah. Satan um, did all the crazy stuff, and we just read about it in Frank Cretti's books and, and all that. So, yes, I understand what you
0: mean. Yeah. So, uh, it, like in college, um, my my first semester, I, I I wasn't involved with the church at all, and then I got involved with the Baptist uh, Student Union for a little while. But my sophomore year, I spent the entire year going to a, a charismatic church, like Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagan style. Yikes. I know, right? Covid nineteen. Um, that yeah. was actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that was actually where I was baptized. I'd never been baptized before then. Um, but, like, I I spoke in tongues, and that so that all imploded for me because I have asthma. I've had severe asthma my whole life. When I went forward for a healing from that, and I felt the guy push me over. Like I'm sitting there praying and everything, and I feel him. He like hits me, not yeah. hits me, but you know pushes. Yeah, and I, did, I didn't did. fall over because right. I'm like, this is just supposed to happen. I'm not supposed to, you know. Right, right. Then he pushed me again to make sure, and he like like he held onto my shoulders and pushed me to make sure that I went over. And that's when I was like, this isn't the truth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> <laughs> so, I I sat up immediately and I watched people you know next to me and then I, and whatever. Again, if that's what makes you whole, I guess, if you're not hurting anybody. Okay. Um, but I do mostly that's about prosperity and about really rich guys on TV telling you to send them money. Yeah. Um, but I was just searching. I was, and I, and then I got involved with Campus Christian Fellowship, which was more in line with the way I'd grown up. And I was, uh, I spent my my senior year as an intern there. We started a drama group, which was well, amazing. Great, great times. And, led music for a semester and I got a job as a youth minister. And that was when we hooked up. We'll tell that in a minute, but you asked what ended up, what turned yeah, how, me away, how I the guess. Bottom out. Yeah. What happened? So we were, we were in a Sunday school class and I was about I know, 29, 30. And there was a guy in Sunday school that would ask the hard questions every week. And I've, I've, I've always asked the hard questions. And I really incur, I always encourage myself to really, you know, what is the answer to this? Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the questions he was asking but I do remember that they were difficult that I found them to be acceptable questions. Like that's a real question. But I remember the answer almost always came back to accept it on faith Hmm. that, you know uh, it's, it's in the Bible. It says to do it or says to believe it or whatever. So therefore I do it. But I just, for that was the first time I sat there listening and I thought, boy, that's, you know, not quite there for in. I wasn't losing my faith, but I was just starting to, you know, like, I was just realizing those are legitimate questions. I don't remember any of them. Yeah. So then the pastor, these were my, these were my watershed moments. The pastor in the church who was a Southern Baptist pastor, which again is pretty much the same as we grew up. It was very similar. Um, just we said, could dance
1: they couldn't. Say what? We could dance and they
0: couldn't. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, he asked, he wanted everybody to write the hard questions on a piece of paper and put him in the offering plate. And then he was going to spend two or three months on a sermon series on answering the hard questions.
1: Oh yeah. That was, I remember that. Yeah. That was a thing that some pastors would do. Right.
0: So the hard questions for me had become things like, because I I believe, I believed at the time that the Bible is a historical document, right? Mm -hmm. Everything that happened is a historical representation of, of things that really happened. Mm -hmm. So my questions were, I can think of two of them. Well, three, they were all around the Gospel of John. Why is the Gospel of John so different from the other Gospels? Why is the story of Lazarus, which is maybe the most important story outside of the resurrection, because he raises Lazarus from the dead and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that is almost the verse that the evangelical movement is built on. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, why is that story only in John? It's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and that's a pivotal pivotal moment where people realize the power of who Jesus is and Matthew Mark and Luke don't even give it a passing mention. Mm-hmm. So what's what's that? And the third question is why why is the language in John different? I, I think those are three you know cuz he's constantly saying I am even if he's just saying, you know, I am hungry, I am thirsty, but he's you know also saying I am the way the truth and life and Yeah. But that verse is only; in these things are only in the book of John. Those are my questions, and and I'm digging. I'm reading like Josh McDowell, Evidence Demands a Verdict, you know. And and we've been raised on you know these the literature you read is the the literature by the great theologians, right? Uh, you're not you weren't really encouraged to explore outside of that, and I don't think it was a conscious thing where people are saying if you do you'll. I think it was just a. I, I think it just comes along with the faith. I, that,
1: I, I think we became <coughs> systemized without realizing yeah. It, that yeah. A, certain, a certain boundary of where we would gather information or food from, and then outside of that, that's when it became... There busy. you go.
0: And I think like 99% of that is is in good faith, to be honest. I don't think anybody is really thinking, don't let him go study that hill. They're just... That's just what how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first week of First week of sermons, the pastor gets up and, and answers the question, why do, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> okay. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not <laughs> <laughs> 12. And, and maybe, I guess, people had asked that. That wasn't, like, even on my radar as a hard, like, I wanted questions about why is the Bible true, basically. Right, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: you really wanted to question things yeah. that were foundational.
0: Right, and when you look back, you know the Bible was they agreed on the books, and about shortly before 400 AD. So, what, what happened to that for those 380 years? What was going on? I mean, books were being passed along verbally and agreed upon, but right, right. Um, and that was, I guess that was that was the moment where I just started like, really, is this is is this really, and not that it's his fault. And there's nobody's his fault. It just kind of, that was when I kind of. I guess woke up and, and, and I, so I started to realize that I don't believe that this book is a historical document. I believe that, that the stories that are told, there are a lot of allegories in the Old Testament. And the way that we were raised, if Adam and Eve is an allegory, then none of it means anything. Mm-hmm. Because if original sin is not a, a specific moment in time, then the entirety of jesus gospel is useless right right yeah. and i i think we still have many many friends from um from hope and grace and, and afterwards that that believe that and again i i don't want to influence you i, I really yeah. don't i i just yeah. i just started to that's where i came in and i remember i brought a balaam's donkey talking because i remember that was the first time i laughed at a story in church and i and I was like, I was like, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and that I never felt I never felt like that. It hadn't even crossed my mind. Yeah. So that was really and that was about the time I was thirty, but even still, after all that, to actually, you know, say out loud that I didn't believe it anymore was, was hmm. a significant step. And I talked to friends, I remember I talked to my friend Matt Herndon, who was uh was in ministry with me at college and a really great friend. And I was like, Man, here's what I'm struggling with and hmm Um, it was not an easy decision to come by, and it really was a decision. But once I made it, I honestly I felt much freer since that time. And yeah, I don't, I don't think that's true for everybody, but it was certainly true for me. Um, yeah. I and so. I know people are really concerned about me at this point. A lot of people, and and I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. But that's yeah, that's that's my story from see i think so i think yours is it was more experiential based and mine was more doctrine based i guess if that is that fair Well,
1: I and well no i mean i think the experience and the doctrine went hand in hand i i i started to grow into when i got into ministry i was kind of a free spirit so i was the the analogy was that uh, of the five fold, the five gifts, like the apostle was the one that could touch all the different gifts, the the teacher, the prophet, whatever, and that was kind of me. I could do a little of all of it, uh, so I quickly stepped into a lowercase a apostolic position. I could initiate and start and 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 invent ideas or ways or discover, and so I was kind of that problem solver person that would come in, and I could tell by walking in a room when something was off, and that that became. Uh, called discernment i didn 't know that's really what that was, and then at some point, I remember reading a book by a, from a pastor had sent to me from John Wimber, uh, a book that he had written um, on the vineyard movement in California and what he went through in the '60s and 70s into charismania, what became the barking like dogs and all that other stuff but they he was telling me stories of the fantastic and the supernatural that as I thought about it, I, th- I, I would look at it and go, well, well, of course. I mean, isn't that what makes faith really worth it all is the experience? But then I noticed that there was a, uh, well, we don't really go for the experience. We just go for the faith. So it turned into this thing where I was an incredible electrician, but could never turn the light on. I could put, we could study the wires and put switches everywhere. Man, this is going to be so great when we flip it on. But we don't really turn the lights on anymore. That's We just talk about what they used to do, or we study code, we study schematics, but we don't really do it anymore. John Wimber said that he had gone to a church uh, after he gave up sex, drugs, and rock and roll and, and wanted to get involved with God, and he waited the whole time because he'd been reading the Bible and saw all the miracles. And after the service was over, he said, he waited and everybody left, and he was still sitting there in the pew. And the, guy, the usher walks up to him, can I help you, sir? And he said, yeah, is that it? He goes, well, what do you mean? I, he goes, is that, is that it? Well, yeah, the service is over. He goes, but yeah, what about the stuff? You know, the miracles and all. Oh, well, we don't really, we don't do that anymore, sir. And he said in, in one of his interviews, I gave up sex, drugs, and rock and roll for this. So he started a quest to find out if you really could move a mountain. And from what his book was saying when I read it, it seemed like something was happening. And that's why I believe the Vineyard Movement seemed to take off at that time, so this is early '90s, '89, '90 that I started to learn about it. So I became very uh, poised towards the charismatic because it just made sense. If I'm going to be a minister, might I not also lay hands on someone in the same way that I saw Jesus do something and something would happen? Well, sure, why not? But then I noticed that wouldn't always happen, and then I noticed that people would a say God wasn't really doing it. it's not God's will, or b the worst part is you don't have enough faith. And that was horrible. That was the worst one. So I this this wrestling started with me. Uh, how do I how do I make God do what I need Him to do? And how do I submit to God and live with what He will not do? And here's a poor man in the street, and I have the faith, and I believe, but He cannot see, He cannot hear, and miracles weren't happening. But then sometimes a couple of things would happen, and it was weird, but it affected my ministry. So that was. That was where my theology was based on. It was based on experience. If I, if the way I used to tell people is if the Bible is a book that tells me how to build a motorcycle, if I build that motorcycle and it don't turn on either the book's wrong or I've followed it wrong, but it's supposed to start up and I should be able to drive around. That's supposed to be the purpose. It's supposed to work. It's supposed to be a life manual for my life to work. Well, when it doesn't, you can't blame God because you can't question God. He's perfect. He's perfect. So who else is at fault? It's got to be you. That's where the psychology came into it and things started to crack. So the the foundation was cracking on that while I was still grasping at straws, trying to make something happen, but the whole building was just coming down. And and I think that I didn't realize how, how much it had cracked until things were put to the test. I had people that would say things like, why can't I get healed from this? Why am I not delivered from this? Why is this? Why that? I couldn't answer. And I, and wherever I went, I always found the hurting, the broken. I would always find those. They would always end up in my door, in my office, whatever church I worked at, lo and behold there, they'd show up, but all the A kids and the B kids were always fine. They didn't need a guy like me. They didn't, they, I was entertaining, but somebody that was serious had an issue. You know, this was deep stuff an addiction an abusive situation. It was the sick that needed a physician. I wasn't seeing the help. The, the charismatic side wasn't even doing it and it just kind of kept coming down from there. And then I think when hell got questioned, that's when everything really fall, fell apart for me. That was the big, big crack was um, the whole hell thing. So I don't, I don't know if I should go into that now or not, but that's really where it all fell apart.
0: Yeah. Go for it. We, we covered mine. So, okay. okay. All right. Well, it's your podcast, not, right, well. you know, I don't know, whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. So, okay. So, when I, when I was in the ch- to church, I had been around to different places around the Midwest. I lived in Indiana. I worked out there as a youth pastor, worked with Campus Crusade a little bit, a bunch of parachurch ministries, uh, Youth for Christ. I found them all wanting. I challenged everybody. Everywhere I went, I left a mess because somebody was offended at something that I did. But yet those who were broken always found someone who cared for them. That I will remember. There were those that really knew heartache knew somebody like me was going to connect. I couldn't fix them, but I could surely sit with them. And and sometimes I would pray for people and it would seem like things would happen. Sometimes it seems like there was words of knowledge and it seemed like there was some fire there. There was some flames to be, some, some embers to be blown on so I could fan a flame. So I kept going. But eventually I left where I was in Indianapolis, came back to St. Louis, uh, worked here for a while with a few different churches. And then I ended up Starting a church in St. Charles, uh, where we are currently—not the church anymore—but I decided to um, to join a house church that was meeting out here, kind of like Grace started when you said at the beginning. But quickly, I found out that the pastor and his wife—something wasn't clicking—and they were of the charismatic faith. There was a lot of laying on of hands, and and it was cool. But one day, I got a call from the pastor, and he says, "Alvin, I think you need to call your people because uh, Mary and I are going to pull out." And I thought, my people. And then I realized I must have already been gathering. I didn't realize that almost all the people that had come to that church were all friends that I had brought. I didn't realize I had been bringing them. They just started showing up. And then I realized, oh, I've got a church in my hands. I don't know what to do. So the the one of the families stayed there after the pastor left, and we decided we'd keep going. And we started what we called the Father's House, which I called the, the generic name for the entire church was the Father's House. So we had a church at St. Charles, just like the Bible. There were no names. I didn't want any buildings, 12 families max, small churches. Everybody that led a church was a pastor. I didn't care. We broke the rule. But I mean, I, I just saw this as very literal stuff. This is what Acts looked like. This is what the apostles, the books and, and all the epistles look like. It seemed kind of Pauline. It seemed, and we just went with it. And I'll tell you, it, it brought crap to the surface so fast because of that intimacy. We were together all the time, you know, just like Band of Brothers. So stuff came to the surface but then there was a problem because I noticed that the things that came to the surface weren't being healed. There was no deliverance. It was legalism. People were trying not to give into addictions because we couldn't get them healed from what it was that was fueling the addiction. So we started questioning things. And I don't know where it happened but one day this guy came into our church and visited with some people and announced to me. And then they came back and told me, said, yeah, this guy, Gary, his name is Gary Amaral. Gary doesn't believe in hell. I thought, what? Oh man, this is bad. Like I got to get involved. <laughs> right. So I go out to talk with Gary because I said, Hey man, you're talking to my people. I got, I'm a pastor. I got a responsibility. And he said, he started to share with me a couple of arguments about hell that really freaked me out because it made me think, wow, maybe this really isn't what it's supposed to be. And then all of a sudden I started coming up with ideas. I don't know where they came from. And it started to just pull apart. It was like demo. I didn't intend to, but just you see that thing on the wall and you pull on it and then it's just the whole thing comes down. And that's basically what I did. And it boiled down to me realizing ultimately that putting a human in a position to make an eternal decision, a carnal being, to uh, our finite being a temporal being in a position to make an eternal decision between two places that they've never been to is actually a little sadistic the risk is too high the punishment doesn't fit the crime i don't get it and then i realized that adam's blood if adam's blood was so powerful it could poison all of humanity without anybody asking how come jesus how can you gotta ask jesus if it was my kids i wouldn't care so here you go guys done but got asked ask for it. And I didn't get that. And so everything started falling apart. And I noticed that when I would bring this up with pastors or anybody else, I mean, they, they would just freak out. People were terrified. One guy, I remember who's in, he was in ministry. I can't talk about this because I don't want to tell somebody there might not be hell because I don't want to end up there myself. I'll never forget him saying that he was terrified. There was the fear. It wasn't working. Love and fear, they weren't mixing. It was oil and and water. It was not. So that's where it all started to fall apart. And I just kept trying and trying and nothing was working. No healings. No, the the theology started to lose meaning. All of a sudden faith moving mountains didn't matter anymore. Now I wanted something deeper. What do I do about those that I know that are gay? The Bible said, you know, like, and then those who are abusers, we had a guy that was an abuser and, Jeez, it just got worse and worse. And eventually a death of one of the kids in my former youth group and in which I went to go to the service to speak at the memorial and and two of the perpetrators that had abused this girl were there wanting to participate, one of them wanting to participate in the service and nobody was really able to fight this. And I just realized I took, I sat down after I spoke, uh, my wife was there and I just said, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Like I I just, all the fire was gone on of me. I didn't believe this stuff anymore. I needed something else. So I just told God I'm giving you 40 days <laughs> and otherwise I'm walking away. And that's basically, I went out with a whimper. It just kind of dried up. And yeah. then I went, I got very depressed and that's the short version, but yeah, it was that foundational theology of hell. It's because the judgment part doesn't match up with love. It just doesn't unconditional love and judgment and and keeping record of wrongs it just don't match and somehow there's a fear that if you have unconditional love that people can do whatever they want it'll be crazy and nuts and mm-hmm. everybody running around naked well that might be the case but it just seemed senseless to me to keep trying to make sense out of something like that that wasn't adding yeah. on. so that's kind of where it started yeah
0: I had the experiences I went along and I would I would meet people that, that had never been Christians and I'd kind of tell them my story a little bit. Yeah. And they or I'd meet people that were that had been Christians their whole life and then when I tell them how, you know, how my belief in the Bible kinda of crumbled, I don't think most Christians relate to that because I don't think they see the Bible as a historical inerrant document. Um and when I started in research that really that that theology only dates back to Sixteen, seventeen hundred, something like that. It, it, it's not an old theology of of the Bible being without error. I see. It's a newer thing, but I think like Catholics don't believe that. Um, mm-hmm. United Methodists don't believe it. I, I mean, I have friends I went to college with that have very strong faith, but don't necessarily believe that every single story. You know, they they do believe there's allegory yeah. in the
1: Bible. Some will believe it's yeah dynamic yeah. or yes, oh, right, I, right. College. So they're
0: surprised that I can't still have faith and not and for me it's but it's just like but that's how i was i mean i was i we were both literally told that and i think paul even writes it that if if there is no original sin then this is all meaningless mm-hmm. yeah and so if you come to the conclusion that adam and eve is an allegory for the imperfectness of, of people and not an actual event um i you you can still believe, you can still build a foundation of, of faith, but it's not it's not the faith that I was raised on. And, and that's, I can't, I just, I, I may go back to it one day. I don't know, I but I'm, no, I'm open no, to I
1: that. it. Well, I took it very, very literally. And when I would talk to people about the situation with hell, I remember talking to parents about their kids and saying, well, if one of your children chose not to accept Christ and ended up in hell forever, would you be okay with that? And a lot of times they would say, yeah, that's their choice. I would think... I only had one son. And at the time he was probably four or five. And I thought, I can't do that. If my son ever chose not to accept God and, and ended up dying and he was going to go to hell, how can I go to heaven? And I used to tell people I would rather go to hell. I really would. I'd rather be with my son. The great irony is I only had one son, my only begotten son, and he took his life just six months ago. So he's, he, he was not practicing anything close to Christianity in any way. In fact, he, he was leaning the other way. He wasn't a bad kid, but he was dabbling in other things. And there are those that believe my son is not going to be there. And I got to live with that. And that makes it very serious for me. I still have two daughters and I, I you know, the stakes are very high for me. And it almost seems, I don't want to say comical, but I mean, it's just a very interesting situation that, I could say, I don't want to talk about this anymore because I lost my only begotten son and I didn't get him back. And I don't know how you're going to believe all this stuff about whatever because it became a mind job for me. And the only way that I could survive mentally was to get away from all of it. I had to turn away from all of it. And I have to admit that I found much more, oh, I hate to say it this way because a lot of people are going to be offended, but I found a much more love unconditional love outside of, of those doors than I ever found within. I, I, I mean, really, there's some great love going on out in the world in the dirtiest, deepest places that people don't like to go, go to. But in the church itself, it's like there is some sinister work that can go on guised with a, with a smile and, you know, I wish you well and go be a peace, blah, blah, blah. It's horrible. And only those that I think are broken enough are going to discern that the ones who need the ones who are starving are going to know when they smell food and when they smell poison, you know, or something like that, or they may be more susceptible or vulnerable to poison because they're so hungry. But so that's where the stakes were very serious and still are very serious for me. But I will say, people would say, and I I should have said this a long time ago and you probably say the same. I'm not an atheist. I do not believe that there's not something there. I just don't think I'm a theist of any kind. Mm -hmm. I I don't think there is a particular entity that holds over or whatever, or at least that is, it is not benevolent. Um, There's just a whole other story to that, because there is an aspect of the fantastic that I feel like I have been starting to explore and understand that used to be fearful. You don't go there. That's dangerous. That's satanic. That's deadly. It's black. It's none of that. Um, It's a little hokey sometimes, but it's just, no, that was my daughter. When
0: are you going to be done?
1: (laughs) (laughs) They're playing Roblox. Not for a while. Keep (laughs) yourselves busy. Make some coffee. Well,
0: Roblox and Minecraft are the...
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, But anyway, yeah. So, I mean, I still believe that there's something going on. I don't think that this all happened for no reason, Mm -hmm. but I don't believe it happened for Original Sin and that kind of judgment and all that stuff. Yeah, I do not know. Let's get
0: to... We'll get to that in a minute. I want to talk about your your new... uh, The things you're finding, but... I, I remember, so I was in college and I was a theater major and I, I got my BA in theater. So I was, I was ministering at campus Christian fellowship. And then I was in plays with, you know, all the theater people, you know, <laughs> it's like to talk about dichotomy drama. Yeah. And I I remember most people in the theater department didn't challenge me on it. There was, it, like you said, it was, there was a lot of love. I mean, in both groups, I really feel like Campus Christian Fellowship. A lot of my great friends from that that I still love, and they still love me. And I, people from that I was in theater with, the same way we love each other. And I ran into one right. at, uh, ran into a, an old friend of mine at Deerbridge University, sitting there talking in the aisle with masks on for like half an hour. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Yeah. But I do remember telling a a girl in the theater department because she did challenge me on on my belief, and I because I believed it. I, let me put it this way. My best friends were were my were my secular, my outside of church friends all the way through high school. Um, I believed every single one of them was going to hell, even though mm-hmm. they were my best friends. Mm-hmm. They never asked me about it. They didn't bring it up. Right. Although one of them, Aaron, uh, told me not to be a Jesus crispy one time. Um, Jesus <laughs> crispy. <laughs> we'll see if he gets this far because he will bring it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. We we still pass that phrase around. He's it's like, Man, you life you can have all the faith you want. Just don't be a Jesus crispy. I'm like, all right, man. Um, but one, one woman in in college in the theater department challenged me on it and I had to tell her that I thought she was going to hell. And I, I don't think I've ever told anybody else that, that what, that didn't want to hear it, you know, that, that wasn't like looking for salvation. She just was challenging me on it. Um, but for the most part, people just really loved me for who I was one way or another and they still do. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about when we hooked up in 94, 95. Okay. Um, Cause it, 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 it was, it, it, I think it's kind of a, a reflection on both of our, our ministry lives maybe. And it's a real life example that we can share together maybe. Okay. Uh, and then we'll jump into some stuff that we believe now. But so I was a, I was a youth minister at Green Trails United Methodist. I was a part-time youth minister. I was working 20 hours a week, and then my second year, 30 hours a week, and I was going to seminary. So let's break it down a little bit. I was raised non-denominational, kind of close to Baptist, but not denominational. Mm-hmm. I was in Campus Christian Fellowship in college, which is through the Christian Church, which is a non-denominational church, but about as close as you can get to being a denomination. Um, I was working at a Methodist United Methodist, uh, which did not fit my belief, I mean, it was pretty progressive church. I know that they're struggling now with whether they're going to uh, say that being gay is okay. That's kind of a big thing. Well, in the
1: church right now. Yeah. United Methodist is an oxymoron like reality television. They, I, <laughs> when I worked with United Methodist, they could never agree on anything. They were constantly fighting. And <laughs> never mean, so, uh,
0: but, but you know, they, they were very, I was not, when I walked into that church, I was not used to, you know, they had like CEOs of major corporations in there who were basically going to church as part of their more as part of their civic and moral duty than than, than yeah. as part of their faith. Right, right. And I would, I had never seen that. I'd only mm-hmm. seen people going to church because of their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people there were feminists in that church. I'd never seen that. You know, so it was very different atmosphere. Yeah. But I was going to Covenant Seminary, which is a, a, a Presbyterian fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. That's a negative word, but you know, a very, it was the same belief structure i was raised in seminary so i had yeah. all these things going on so i was the youth minister there and we had a retreat. i think it's probably my second year there because my first year on the summer retreats i like got out of college and went on a retreat was the first thing i ever did with the youth group so for the second year i'm like hey i got a guy i know a guy from let me call him and i don't even know how i had your number because you know back then nobody had cell phones
1: that's true, yeah. Well you may have known that I was I had gone to Indiana to work with Don Forrest because he left Hope Church and went out there to be a pastor and Don that's work. and uh, yeah, and, and that was after Kent and, and Dan and Chuck and all those guys and um, there were people that were all still connected. I still had family here that was at Hope, so I'm sure that somehow or another it was way because right. my sister ended up coming to the concert, so she was still living in town, but yeah. we drove in I believe we drove in from. Indiana to do the retreat. I don't think I was living here at the time. I think I was already out there at the time. Really, ninety four? You say
0: would have been the summer of ninety five.
1: Yeah, ninety five. I was just about I, not much longer. I was going to be moving back home. Okay. So
0: yeah. So so you came to that, and you were going to you were the uh, you were the musical preacher. You know the uh, the evangelist, I guess. But ninety methods don't have. The I was angels. the entertainment for the week. There you go. You were the you were the guy that did the music and did did uh, the lessons and and, did I teach you? Oh, I'm sorry. I feel like you did. (laughs) So here's my story. So the first night we probably got there eight, nine o'clock at night with a bunch of teenagers. And so this uh, green trails had a mix of like evangelicals and, and like United Methodists. It was like this, Kind of this boy, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was real, and they, but they all, they were still a church family, and they loved you. Again, they loved each other, and they stayed together.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So you come in the first night, and we, I bet we sang for two plus hours, and and you know the way that you you're singing uh, praise choruses. So you're singing the same chorus over and over and over again, which i kind of learned in studying at this is in without realizing it, you're, you're in a way, it's kind of a way to hypnotize a crowd. Like,
1: yeah, you're entrancing people. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: So that they're more open to suggestion and you're not even doing it on purpose. You think you're just worshiping, right? Yeah. But you sing the same chorus over and over. And All I remember right. uh, the music minister, I think her name was Denise. She was mad. Oh my goodness. She laid into me. Really? I'm this kid oh yeah I was like 23 I'm this kid I'm, I'm a naive person anyway I was like that was a great retreat and she goes I did not like that opening I felt like they were taking advantage of the kids the kids needed rest and they were they were given an invitation and they weren't and I was like whoa I I've never run into that before like everybody that I grew up with would have been, would have been very excited about that whole service and she was livid huh. and this was like a week later so I, I could tell she'd even cooled down a little bit so she must have been really hot that night wow um, yeah, so that was the kind of, you know, and, and then you said you did a concert afterward. Do you remember anything about that concert? I, I really don't. I, I
1: did some of my original music. My sister still has a, a video um, of it uh, somewhere. I don't know if I have it or, but I remember seeing it. But yeah, it was uh, me and my friend John Wiley, who's now been living in, in uh, New York, uh, is in Brooklyn, he has been there for many years. Um, he's been friends with, with Colin Culkin. He's been around, seen some things. He's done, he, he went into music. I did not. Um that was part of my story as I kind of tripped on myself and fell off the wagon and didn't end up going into professional music. Um but that was kind of the direction I was planning on going because at that time I had already been invited to uh uh is it DC LA it was the big uh, uh the big youth for Christ thing they were doing I was at the big thing where they were in we were at Tennessee, I I had dinner three tables away from Michael W. Smith. I was being groomed to make my way up the ladder into that whole thing. And then at that big conference I was at, which I think was before this, is when I discovered the 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 C kids room, the at-risk kids room. The entire Uh, Civic Center was full of Christian stuff. They were doing lessons and talks about how to make your ministry better and not improve everything. And there was only one room where all these guys were talking about the at risk struggling kids and how they have no money to help them. And, and I thought, I, I, I don't get it. These are the people Jesus would, this is the ones right here. And yet 90% of the rest. So yeah, that all kind of started falling. So that was like where I was headed at that time. But I think the bottom was already starting to crack for me on the performance side at that point. But it did seem to me that the emotional side of doing music and performing and everything, that was that was a big deal for me. So if I could influence a crowd using my music and my abilities, I would do that whenever I could, because I felt it was the right thing to do. It was, it was very safe and very noble, very holy to use my talents in that way. I never thought that it was a manipulative thing or uh, right. prod or anything like that. It just seemed like it was, you know, hey, if God's given me the ability, then heck I'll do it. Let's make it happen. But,
0: yeah. And I think but, I, I, I believe that. And I thought, and I remember your song at the cross. You were writing music. It was great music. Yeah. Um, oh
1: yeah. yeah, Right. Okay. Well, there was, there was about four or five different ones that I was writing and I'm working on and I integrated a few too at the time. So, but yeah, it's been a long time.
0: Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I never, um, we talked about a little bit about, Ah, the, the dark underbelly of the church—I don't know what, you mean, whatever.
1: The dark side.
0: I guess so. Uh, I was really fortunate in that you know I went, I—I I was in the church for thirty plus years, and I never had a person that tried to influence me out of anything other than love. I really, I really didn't. Um, and if they did, I did—I I didn't notice it, and it had no impact on me. Right. Yeah. Um. So I—I I feel very fortunate that I—I I did not see even as a minister, I mean, I saw, you know, you see the little politics, but never bothered me. Um, I know people that have gotten out of it just because you get into church and you see how it runs behind the scenes. You're like, this isn't, you know, like you said. Yeah. When I saw how the process was
1: to made, I was so easily disillusioned. I collapsed. I I was so betrayed. I saw the, the man behind the curtain, so to speak. Um, and I couldn't, yeah, that was too much for me. I couldn't write that off. So yeah, that's a little different.
0: Yeah. So tell me about, uh, tell me about the things you're, you've been looking at. And I mean, I I, I, I listened, do you have a podcast that's out there where right? you want to pitch that a little yeah. bit? Or?
1: Well, I mean, I don't really, I don't necessarily push it, I guess, but I leave it there for those on the same, a similar path. Um, it's called The Skeptical Mystic. It's on Podbean. And uh, anybody that wants to is welcome to message me if they can't find the link because I don't really... Promoted a lot but it talks about what became an awakening for me a year ago a little over a year ago now uh from a dormant state spiritually for a decade so it was 2009 when all this happened where I walked away from Christianity and, and all and it wasn't like I walked away from Christianity and still kept my relationship with God because to me it all was the same and people would say well you know you got to let go of God's people and still believe in God no, because the boss is where the problem was. The people were only acting out what the boss wasn't doing. The book wasn't right. Something wasn't right. I couldn't. I couldn't figure out who the real boss was. I couldn't get the why are there forty five hundred denominations? And I worked in many denominations. I mean, the E. Freed, the Baptist, the Anabaptist, the even the Catholic Charismatics, if you could believe that, in Steubenville, Ohio. Like they're everywhere. There's something going on, and I saw all of it, and it all like became just mush to me. I couldn't do it. So for 10 years I was basically a secular humanist but an artist because that's always been my thing as an artist so the emotional and the the leaning towards the 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 fantastic if you couldn't call it supernatural was always there I was always willing to consider ooh it could be this maybe it is aliens maybe there is you know whatever I didn't know if it was a buddha I didn't know any of that stuff but I was I was always willing but nothing really proved itself to me and it was about a year ago Uh, where it was through, and it's in my podcast, uh, where you can get more of the details, but it was a huge bout of anger that came out with what I mentioned about my grandfather. Uh, Somehow or another, there was something I connected to, and it had to do with uh, John Leguizamo, the actor. Uh, He had a show on Netflix called uh, Latin History for Morons, and long story short, he expressed some things about Latin history that I thought, that's where I started to figure out how i had been hurt. I didn't realize how I had been discriminated against until I heard him speak. And I realized, wow, I've been going through this forever. And that's why I identified with the black community in many ways, because I was similar. I was more on their side of the fence as a minority and living in the same projects and things like that. So I got that more. And DSEG was going on in the 80s. So they're trying to integrate all the black and white uh, students. So there was a lot of forced, you know, so all that was there. And at some point I had this huge event where I just blew up and I remember saying that I just hated white people. I'd never felt that in my life. I never really had, I was angry at certain people, but I mean, I was just like, I want them gone. I would, I mean, this is just the way I felt. I'm not saying that it should happen. I'm not trying to start a move. Thanks movie. man. Appreciate thinking, it. Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry, Derek. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so after it was after that and I don't understand exactly why this happened until later I started to realize that, somehow me letting that negative energy out pay, it it, it created a, something came out and there was a hole, there was a void and that whatever that, that space was, was able to be filled with something or wanted to be filled with something. And all of a sudden I had this strong, almost insatiable desire to start exploring videos of near death and out of body experiences. I don't know, something to do, little woo-woo, but why not? Who knows? I thought I've watched those videos in the past and was a little mist, mist, uh, mystified by them and thought it was kind of cool. But at that time when I did, when I started to watch them, I got to be honest, it blew my mind. I had never, I guess there must have just been so many more that have been coming up. And what blew my mind was not the fact that these people were having these experiences. It's that these people did not know each other and were having the same experiences. And then it was always unconditional love. It was always no judgment. There was always some, and I just started to notice these correlations and then quantum physics videos were popping up alongside it too. And I thought, what's this all about? Then I started reading about quantum entanglement and all these other things. So naturally the only option I have is to start exploring the crystal shops. I don't know where to go. And I met a lot of people that were a little out there, um, safer than some church people that I work with, but still a little too woo-woo for me. And I brought the solid, let's find out what's rock kind of thing to it and started testing things out. And I spent the entire year, literally, I mean, every single night for an entire year, uh, or at least all throughout the year, watching these videos of people's out-of-body, veridical out-of-body experiences, things that they could say they knew what happened in the other room that science can't prove. Not just oxygen deprivation, but literally experiences that. And there are a lot of them, and none of them were Jesus this. It wasn't hell stuff that there were that section of those. They're usually CNN or 700 Club videos. But one guy, I remember, he had his experience when he was very young. And then he showed another video where he was older and then another one where he was almost our age and his, his theology changed after his experience, guys, whatever I said about hell and judgment, I'm just telling you now, things are coming back to me from my experience. I forgot. And he realized everybody's going to be okay. I mean, I loved it. I loved the open loving ways that everybody was talking and there wasn't anything that was, it was just all cool. There were other aspects, too. There were aspects of reincarnation. The University of Virginia has been studying these cases, 3,000 cases they've studied over the past 50 years. Dude, it's weird. Very interesting stuff. I, I would not give it a, a second if I thought that it was not credible. It blew my mind. And I'm still researching. Long story short, I kept studying all this and, and trying and to experiment my life and figure out. And I felt like it was some kind of an awakening. Now, I'm not going to, I can't, I'm only speculating on this one because right now we're about to get to where it's really serious for me. I didn't know that just a few months after that, my son would end up taking his life. I discovered his body. All I knew was that in a way I was somewhat grateful to whatever I would call the other side, whether it's God or maybe that's too small of a word. That somehow I was reopened to think beyond the carnal because I was going to find my own son. I don't know if it was meant to be, if it was chance, maybe it's both, like Forrest Gump, maybe it is both. But to me, that was a setup in a very interesting way. And I do not have any, I mean, I can't go into it because it's still the grief is too near. But that was my only son. He was just like me, my musically. Uh, all the I mean I ended up being a music producer. Um, he did the same, he played the same instruments as me. He was he was like a mini me, just thinner and better looking. And and he was really uh struggling inside and wasn't able to talk about it. I tried to talk to them, but I didn't know how bad it was. And I don't even know what happened. All I know is that his energy, whoever he is or was, has left. And all we were all that remained was a body. And man, it took me to you know, the master's level of studying. And so now the stakes were higher. And that's always been my story. It's like always the stakes are higher. I got to, I got to find out, is this made of stone or not? I'm banging on the wall to find studs. And I'm still there today. And my, whatever faith I had back then a year ago, since those recordings that I have on my, like, it's really cracked down to the point where Whatever remains has got to be real stuff because a lot of the frou fru I mean, I, I hate to say it. There were a lot of spiritual people I met that when they, once this happened, they, they ran for the hills. They didn't know what to do. I, I can't blame them, but I mean, there just was no substance to hardly any of them because they couldn't deal with it. Maybe they thought we didn't want to deal with it. Maybe they didn't know what to say, but they couldn't reach out. Nobody could reach out. What do you say? It wasn't cancer to be angry at. It wasn't a car accident my son's own will. He took his life. And so everything has gotten crazy for me because of that. But, but, um, I have had interviews with people. I've talked with people. I will be honest and say that I've talked to people that have gifts of mediumship. Um, I've tested some things out. I've met some freaky, goofy people. It's been some interesting things and I'm still curious about. The jury is still out on. Um, but the, the big difference, I'll say this much, The difference between the Alvin back in the church days and the Alvin now is that back in the church days, I would have to believe in faith and just take it on faith. And that's all you had. And when I think of faith, hope and love and the greatest thesis love, I never could make sense of that because I couldn't get past the faith part because nothing ever proved itself for any kind of hope. Well, you're not supposed to prove it. You're supposed to believe it. And that's it. Now I realize that when I look at faith, hope and love, that faith is the means to start scratching at things to see if there's something hopeful, but the experience is the love part and that it's okay to want an experience. Now I grew up thinking you don't go for the experience. You just go for faith. Don't turn on the lights, just wire the building and then go home. That's over. So I am more desperate and, and a lot harder on the other side or whatever the universe is now than I feel like I was back then. And I, I, I'm okay with that because to me, if it's really there, it's, that's the way it's supposed to be. What else am I going to do? I don't know any better. I don't know what else to do, but I cannot keep my mind on a carnal level. I've always got one foot on potential. It's just my way. As an artist, I'm that way, just as a thinker, as a, a, I I don't know. I'm always thinking about those kinds of things. So that's kind of where I'm at, but there's no formal gathering. I'm in, I visited a spiritualist church, which was kind of cool, but, Mostly it's a natural thing. Uh, I've learned that like staying connected to nature, staying connected to a community, staying connected to meaning and work, a meaningful life, will help me to be connected to me. And that's it. That's really all I'm going for. It ain't going so well some days because if anybody's watching this has lost a child um, or even anyone from their own volition of a suicide, they're just in no place to put that, man. There's no hook to hang that on. You, you can shut down so bad and the world will just look down on you and go, what a shame, you know, but man, you want to die. You want to go with them. I've struggled with that many times. I still go through that sometimes. So it's heavy. So the stakes are really high for that reason. Um, and that's all I know. I mean, I've, I've taken some trips. I'm still willing to go meet people. If I find somebody I think has a gift, I will email them. I'll, I've connected with some organizations that, yeah, there's a whole other podcast than that one. <laughs> But I don't, have any, I don't have anything just yet. But when I do find something, if I find something that I believe is veridical, I will end up posting it all over the world. I will let everybody know. So that's my quest. I'm digging for gold.
0: I don't know what veridical means. Oh, verified. Sorry. Okay, thank you.
1: Um, if for anybody that's interested, the most, the most veridical organization out there is IANS, International Association of Near-Death Studies composed of thousands and thousands of people who have had near-death experiences and something very fascinating that i have learned you take five christians from five different churches and put them in a room and they'll kill each other by the time they're done if you start talking theology you take five thousand people that have had a near-death experience and put them in a room they're going to love each other that told me something they're all cool they all like is that what happened for you that's cool this is what happened for me beautiful and i love them i some of them were goofy but most of the time, man, they just, they get along and they do well, but yeah, I've never seen that kind of connection except for people that have had those kinds of experience. There's a chapter here in St. Louis. I went to meet them and I've talked with others on the web and things like that. So, but yeah, that's the vertical. If it can't be verified, I don't bother. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, we used to be told, well, you're never going to know till we get to heaven. Well, no, I'm going to know now I'm going to die trying. And that's the way it's going to be because I ain't got nothing left to, you know, I've lost everything already, so to speak. So what have I got to lose? So,
0: Well, Alan, thanks for sharing that. I, I was not anticipating you, uh, you sharing that. And I, uh, honestly, I feel blessed that you were willing to open up about that.
1: Well, I um, hope I didn't, I hope I didn't overstep in a way that you didn't expect. I apologize.
0: Oh no, absolutely that. not. Absolutely not. Um, I'm all out. I got, I got nothing. Um, No, that's
1: fine. I I think in closing, I will, I feel, I feel like saying this, I'll throw this out. There may be some people that have watched all the way to the end here. I don't know. We're looking at a good uh, hour and a half or so, but if anybody is like, man, wow, I need to find out. And I don't have the answers but I'm a good asker of questions and I'm, I'm willing to blow the dust off of things and hammer on stuff. If somebody is interested in connecting that is just as open-minded, anybody that sees this is welcome to find me on, on Facebook, um, online or whatever, if they'd like to be in contact. And if I think that things are a little too far off on your boundaries or whatever, I'll say something, but there are a number of groups that I've been a part of, uh, People that have walked away from Christianity, there's a life after a secret community I'm a part of. There's a near-death community I'm a part of. I'm always open to talking with somebody that's, that's looking for authentic uh, existential understanding, that if they can find it. And and I feel that emotional healing and, and growth happens in that as well, if you're willing to look at yourself in deeper. And if somebody's on that quest that, that wishes that they had somebody to talk with or can connect with, I'm willing to be considered for that because I wished I could have had somebody like me, man. I wish there was somebody like me back in the day. You, you know what I mean too, right? Somebody that could have just said, yeah, let's talk about it. And I never could find them. So i got to try to be that for somebody if I can. Plus we're starting an organization for struggling youth in town. Oh, good. Uh, it's called the creative society it's a long story behind that, but we're going to try to open a creative space here in town and help kids that were Addison's age and, and older artists, mostly creatives and artists, because it's that torture of not being able to express that can often lead to depression. And people need to know that expressing ourselves, whether it's a product or not, you don't need to be a producing artist, you just need to express yourself. Van Gogh wasn't famous till he died. We love him, but I mean, he didn't care about that until you know it wasn't his thing. But I think that expressing in, in our world, we've lost culture because we think all commerce and no culture. So I want to be an agent of that culture without trying to make a buck, but trying to help support a community. That's one of the ways we're giving back and our loss for that is helping all his friends. So, but anyway, yeah, I just, just to know that that somebody's out there for whatever it's worth and the podcast if somebody wants to listen to it. Absolutely. I'll send you the link.
0: And Alvin, your name's in the title. And so anybody wants to reach out to Alvin do that. And I'm going to piggyback a little bit. If, if you've got a story to tell, I, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for everybody to have dramatic big stories, but if you've just got something creative or interesting that might, help encourage somebody else. Um, somebody else might be able to relate to. I feel like a lot of the things you talked about here, a lot of people can relate to, even people that have maintained their faith over their entire life. I, There's no way you get through life without asking some serious questions because stuff flies at you fast. Um, you know, reach out to me. My name is Dirk Pointer. You can look me up on Facebook. Same thing. I think we're going to get a Twitter handle here soon. I don't know. It's kind of dangerous. Nice. Yeah. Only 240 characters. at am like, but, uh, um, or just, re- you could reply in the comments, look us up. You know, I'm, I'm looking for people with stories that, that are willing to share their stories and just trying to get them out there so we can all, we can all hear from each other instead of all the junk we usually listen to. Alvin, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, man. Hey, thanks for asking me to be on. And I think that this idea is really great. I, I hope that it's taken off and, uh, yeah, that it just keeps on going because you're right. It's it's this is much better than a lot of the other cred that's out there. So it's good to see somebody doing this, and you're putting your heart into it. And I hope it keeps going. So yeah, thanks. Thank sir. you,
0: sir. I appreciate that.
1: Welcome. All right.